is making sure that we're all using the same word. I don't know how many times you've gotten into a discussion and you're arguing two different perspectives, you're coming from two different places on the same word and you find out that it's that you're both using it differently. Sometimes that'll happen in a marriage, right? And then you've got to just pretend that you were using it the same way the whole time rather than, I mean, we've all been there, right? So I want you to just, um, we're just going to take three or four minutes where you gather with a couple people around you and I want to hear your definition of character and I'm not trying to pull any kind of clever bait and switch on you or something where I say, ah, you said it means this, but it really means this. I just really want to know what you guys are thinking and you come up with a good definition of character because it's a really interesting word. It's a word that I've looked up several definitions on. It's not really a word that's used in our text to where you could just go and look at the Greek lexical definition and I could just give you a smooth definition like that. And you look up, I think the last dictionary definition I looked up, it was the aggregate of all of the virtues. And I was like, how are you going to define character with the word aggregate? Because I don't even know what aggregate means, so that doesn't really help me. So if you could just turn to a couple of people around you, and I would love to hear a definition from you guys on what character means. Can I hear, some, can I hear somebody's definition for character? If we're going to be coming together talking about building godly character, we should know what it is that it is that we're uh, looking to build, right? So somebody give me their group's definition for character, please. we got we said many brilliant things like <laughs> <laughs> so what I'll read though is who you are and what you do when no one is looking mm. that is actually in case you didn't know you just ripped that off that's a quote from D.L. Moody so really I hope somebody had the decency to footnote the guy's been guy's been dead for a hundred years. I mean, that's, that's not even right. Um, somebody else? All right, go for it. Uh, okay, the true, the true essence of somebody. Uh, I, I saw definitions that talked about the true essence of somebody in action, right? Not just what you want to be, but what you want to be put into action. Give me one more, one more. I saw a couple hands over here. It doesn't have to be a contest, just somebody busted out. It's an aggregate of... Um. <laughs> That's going to be the next question. Can you guys come together and define aggregate? That's a person with moral identity. Okay, a moral identity. Cool. Thank you. Um, I, I was just curious where you guys are coming together when, when we're talking about this word character. If we're trying to develop something, what is it that we're trying to develop? So... This message, we're going to begin to get into a lot more practical development of character, and we're going to hopefully give you some things to take and apply in these areas um, that you might have the opportunity to demonstrate character in areas that maybe previously 
you did not. So that's the hope. Um, We're not really going to be starting a new thought. Last message, we saw that we are free to live righteously because we have been made righteous through faith in the gospel. We looked back at the beautiful truth that when we are righteous because of Christ, and we're righteous because Christ lived a righteous life, and through the gospel, that righteousness that belonged to Jesus is imputed to us, and it now belongs to us. And because of that imputed righteousness, our righteousness is based on Christ's righteousness and not our own. And this is critical if we're going to be able to understand where character comes from. In this message, we're going to be looking at the foundation of that positional righteousness and the foundation of progressive righteousness. And I'll explain what that means, or righteous character. And we're going to see that it comes from the same foundation. So positional righteousness, progressive righteousness, comes from the same foundation, faith in the gospel. So I'm going to ask Jacques, would you please read 2 Peter 1.5? And I'm going to ask James, would you please read Hebrews 11.24-27? through 27. Hebrews eleven twenty four through twenty seven. Thank you. Um, Jeremy, would you please pray for our time in the Word? So we established last message that Peter is talking to people that have been made righteous because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then the passage goes on to talk about all of these characteristics or character like we just defined that will characterize the life of the one who has been made righteous through Jesus Christ. So verses 5 through 8 will be the aggregate of the one who has been made righteous through Jesus. It says, For this very reason, make make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, your virtue with knowledge, your knowledge with self-control, 
and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. But first in the list is this aspect of faith. There's a total of eight attributes, eight characters that are listed, but first on the list is the aspect of faith. And when something is first in a list of things in the Scriptures, you need to ask yourself a couple of questions in order to interpret it rightly. The first is, is it first sequentially? Is this just first because it exists first in a bunch of items on a list? So like when I write down a grocery list and I tell my wife, honey, what is it do I need to get when I go to the store? And she says, milk, bread, eggs. She doesn't say diapers. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's definitely more important. So we'll go back and we'll put that up at the top before milk. But we're just writing out a list, right? So we're not putting those things in order of importance. We're just ordering them. So the first is when you see a list and you see the items on it, are they just listed sequentially? Or is it foundationally? As in the term that is first, is it there because everything else that comes after the term that's first builds upon that item. So if you were describing to somebody a list of ways that you would make a sandwich, you'd probably start with bread, right? Because that's the foundation to which you add your meat and your cheese and your condiments. Or is it chronological? Is this thing first on the list because this item chronologically happens before the rest of the items can happen and they can't take place until after this thing has taken place? So I'm going to give you some examples from Scripture so that you're not looking at me like I'm crazy. Um, To the Jew first from Romans chapter 1 when it says the Gospels to go to the Jew first and also the Gentile. You ask these questions. Is that saying that every single time that the Gospel is preached, that it's first supposed to be preached to a Jewish person? Was it just sequentially there? Is it saying that hey, that's um, what happened? Is it saying chronologically? Is it foundational? This was the foundation of the church? Or you take something maybe a little bit less confusing. Let's take the fruits of the Spirit from Galatians 5. Right, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Is this just a random list? Or is love something that has a purpose in being put first? Is it just sequential? Or is love something foundational? Whereas it has to be put first on the list because all of the things that come after love are then built off of that being put in the position that it was put. Or is it perhaps chronological? Like love is what begins the fruits of the Spirit. And then after that, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Those things build chronologically off of love. Or take another list, one of our favorites, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 13 where it lists the different characteristics of love. And when Paul starts off describing love, he starts off by saying love is patient. So is he saying that love is patient for some theological purpose to set up something specific that he wanted to say about love? For instance, were the problems that the Corinthians were experiencing with regards to love, and specifically within that context of spiritual gifts in chapters 12 through 14, was it as a result of not being patient in their love, or is patience just an item that lands first on the list? So in this list, faith takes top billing 
And is faith just first on a list of eight aspects of character? Or is it foundational? Or does it have some chronological significance to it? Or is it even causational? We're going to take a whole message just on this aspect of faith in character building and faith in the relationship with character and why it falls where it does on the list. So really this message, we're just going to zero in on that one word faith in 2 Peter 1.5 when it says add to your faith. Because Peter does something really interesting here. He starts off the list presupposing that there's going to be faith. And as he goes on to name all these things that you should add, as he's talking about, you should add virtue, you should add moral character, you should add steadfastness, you should add brotherly love. He doesn't talk about faith in that same way. And that's because Peter is already supposing that faith is going to be there if we're talking about forging gospel character. This is often missed when we rush to get into the list. I'm going to talk to you guys in the next session about how I used to just love lists in Scripture because they are the ultimate check mark to see how I'm doing with Jesus. So I've taught on this passage a bunch of times. I just rush right in to verses 5 through 8. And this is often missed if we just rush to get into verses 5 through 8 because I think that people don't take the time to pay attention to the fact that a lot of these lists of virtues are supposed to be interpreted through the lenses of the resulting righteousness that came through faith that Peter talked about in first 1, where Peter already commends them for the saving faith that they have in the Gospel. So foundationally, by the time we get to verse 5, Peter's presupposing that it's faith in the Gospel that is going to propel these people to a life of godly character. And it's safe for him to assume this because he's already gone over it. So rather than talking about faith as one of the things that are supposed to be added, like all the other seven items on the list, he presupposes that it's going to be there as the foundation that all of these other things are supposed to be added upon. Turn to your Bibles in Habakkuk 2 where this is stated another way. I'll give you some time if it takes you to find Habakkuk because it might take me a minute too. The verses that's most oft quoted in the New Testament, it says, Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but, in contrast, the righteous shall live by his faith. So last message we talked about a lot about the righteousness that is ours through faith in the gospel. It was actually Luther's reading of Paul's quotation of Habakkuk 2.4 that started the entire Reformation. Because up until this, Luther, uh, up until this point, people would look at this verse and interpret it that the way that someone becomes righteous is by living by enough faith. They would have to have enough righteousness in order to be declared righteous, and this would come as a result of living by faith. But the struggle that Luther had and many before him was how righteous 
is righteous enough? And how do I know that I've finally tipped the scales in my favor? If I need to be righteous in order to appease this righteous God, when do I know that I've finally accrued enough righteousness to my account to be able to assuage this righteous God who is looking at me? And how do I know that I'm finally in His good graces? And no matter how righteous I live, how could I be completely righteous before a righteous God who already says that He sees me as unrighteous by merit of my birth in sin in Adam. So listen to this quote describing his experience with this. He says, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans. And nothing stood in the way but one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean the justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that though as an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather I hated him and I murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and I had a great yearning to know what he meant in this verse here specifically. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the righteousness of God and the statement, the righteous shall live by faith. And then I grasped that the righteousness of God is the righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Therefore, I felt myself to be reborn and having gone through open doors into paradise, Luther says. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me the very gate of heaven. I love those words. That's from Paul's commentary to the Romans. So, saying this, a lot of our previous message was saying exactly that, that we have been made positionally righteous through faith in Jesus, and that righteousness is not something that we're working for, but it's something that we're given through merit, through the gospel. But there's a tension, and a lot of you guys pointed out this tension in conversations that we had during the break, between positional righteousness that we have through faith in Christ and practical righteousness that we are called to live day by day as those who have been made righteous by Jesus Christ. And I believe that Habakkuk 2.4 illustrates that tension perfectly. So Luther took Paul's usage of Habakkuk to draw the conclusion that we are made righteous through faith in Jesus Because we are justified and we're given Jesus' righteousness. You tracking with me on that so far? Here's where it begins to get practical for you. If that's not practical already, and I think that that's intensely practical, that's the gospel. When you look at Habakkuk's usage of it, he's making the point that those who are righteous are going to be living lives of faith. Or maybe to make it a little bit clearer, flip it around, that those who are of faith are going to be living lives that are righteous. So Habakkuk 2.4 is talking about those who by faith has now been given to them positional righteousness 
that they're going to live out a day-to-day practical righteousness, a.k.a. character, through that same faith. Get that? So this positional righteousness that was given to us by faith in Jesus through the gospel, that our practical righteousness, our character, is going to be forged the same way through faith in that same Jesus. So not only have we been made righteous by our faith in Christ, as we spoke on last session, but now those who have been made righteous will continue to live by faith in that same gospel that saved us and imputed that righteousness to us. So all of this to say that that which saves us positionally is the same thing that develops our character practically. Faith in the Gospel. It's the same thing. This shows us that the Gospel not only justifies the sinner, the Gospel also sanctifies the saint. Get that, folks. That is just critically important. The Gospel not only justifies the sinner, the Gospel also sanctifies the saint. I know in the area of the country that I live in, a lot of people have pushed back against that because what happened is people took that and they put sanctification before justification. So we fought hard to make the gospel about justification, which it is, but we threw out the baby with the bathwater and forgot that the gospel is everything about sanctification as well. So just because some people twisted it, which Paul warned us through Timothy would happen, doesn't mean that we shouldn't apply the greatest tool we have in our arsenal for the building of character. The gospel sanctifies us. Christians lost track of that big time. If you study church history, it's hard to put an exact number on it, but I would say about 50 years ago or so, where we just recently have now started to come out of it and reclaim the power of the gospel and sanctification. Because justified man continues to live by faith in the gospel. That's Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous shall live by faith. That man who's been made righteous will continue to live in faith in that gospel that made him righteous. And that will in turn be doing a sanctifying work in his life. If we stayed steadfast on that reality... It would have kept us from getting into so many of the goofy controversies that we've had over the last 50 years. When you think about the questions that people have been asking, should this church be seeker-sensitive or should it dive hard into the truth? It's a stupid question. It's the Gospel. The Gospel's the answer to both of them. The gospel is what pulls the seeker to Jesus. And the gospel is what drives the saint deeper into Jesus. Wrong question. Do we believe in lordship salvation or do we believe in the non-lordship position? Stupid question. It doesn't need to be asked. It's about the gospel. The gospel says that Jesus is Lord. But as the gospel continues to sanctify us, he increasingly becomes Lord in the life of the believer are we going to be more about evangelism or discipleship stupid question it's the gospel it's always been the gospel that's the answer 
I don't know where we lost that. These are goofy questions, and the only reason that we ask them is because we've forgotten that the gospel is the answer to all of them. I've been preaching through this series. It's the hardest series that I've ever preached through. I've picked the seven most controversial things out there right now. And I'm just saying, hey, let's, let's just swing for the fences on all of them and let's kill the pink elephants in the middle of the room. So we're preaching on um, men's and women's roles in the ministry, hell, universalism, homosexual marriage. I mean, you, you name it, if it's one of the hot-button issues, we've been talking more about Chick-fil-A than I've ever wanted to over the last few weeks. But I was so proud, this young man that I've been developing since he was a, a little boy, came up to me and said, you know what's amazing? So far with each of these sermons, all you've done is state the issue and then preach the gospel. I was like, yes, that's it. It's not supposed to be rocket science because Jesus didn't expect us to be anything more than a dumb boat full of fishermen. It's always been about the gospel. But instead, the gospel became something that we tacked on to the end of church services while we were supposed to sit silently, except for the keyboard, who was allowed to hit one note. And all of you guys, you have to bow your heads because obviously the gospel can't be the gospel until every head is bowed and every eye is closed, except for the guy that likes to peek and see which hands go up. That's what the gospel has become. And it's ridiculous. If we never strayed From the centrality of the gospel, we would have never gotten into so much of the goofy territory that we've gotten into. If we never strayed from the centrality of the gospel, we would never be seeing Christians act like idiots on Facebook as they're trying to answer questions that shouldn't be that tough because they're trying to answer them with no moorings or groundings because they're doing it devoid of gospel. So all they do is exacerbate the situation and throw fire on it because their witty, pithy Facebook settings were never supposed to be the answer. It was always supposed to be the gospel. It was always supposed to be the gospel. So the reason that Peter puts faith first is because all sanctification and building of character is a result of faith in the gospel. So I want to do an exercise that I do with people so that they can begin to understand this truth. Uh, I'm sure that a lot of you, I'm going to go back to Second uh, Peter 1.12. I'm stirring you up by way of reminder, probably not telling you anything new, but just in case there's one person that is, um, we're going to love that brother or sister. So just give me um, some aspects of the gospel. Just give me like, you know, like forgiveness, right? That's one. Give, 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 me, give me some more. Just go ahead and bark them out. Come on. Okay. Grace. Okay. uh, Give me some more. Cross. Love. (laughs) I wasn't going for that one, but that one's always the right answer. Uh, (laughs) I've taken so many people in our church that are wrestling through areas of character 
and have just very simply showed them that any aspect of character that you're wrestling with, it's just an unbelief in the gospel. That's why Peter puts this first. I, I sat with a couple that had been going through marriage counseling for 15 years. I mean, I, I'll just be honest. It was my parents. I, I am my parents' pastor. They're in my church. So it was kind of awkward. They're going through <laughs> marriage problems. <laughs> I get to say that here because they're not here. Um, but I just said, what is the gospel? have to say about marriage problems what do you mean that question doesn't even make sense so i used to carry a whiteboard with me so i took the whiteboard and got out of my car and i was just like just give me some aspects of the gospel and they started naming off things like grace and forgiveness and substitution and the enoughness of jesus i was like oh where are you not applying the forgiveness that you've received fully and completely in Christ and applying that into aspects of your marriage. And where you're seeing that your marriage is just struggling and you're not thinking that it can come out on top, where are you not taking the enoughness of Jesus who's enough for you in the midst of your broken relationship and applying that to your broken marriage? If we really believe that the gospel restores all things, where are you believing in that unto your salvation and believing that that's something that's going to save your soul and it's your hope for all of eternity, but you're not applying this to your marriage. And I try to, when I sit with people who are just wrestling with areas of character that they just can't seem to come out of, I just say, let's just go back to the gospel. You don't have to be this biblical scientist to be able to figure it out. Let's just start naming characteristics of the gospel. Where are you not believing and applying the gospel into those areas of character? Like When I'm struggling with covetousness, it's a gospel issue because I'm having a hard time believing that Jesus is enough for me. And that when Jesus purchased me through the gospel, that his enoughness is sufficient. So I begin to have this lapse in my character called covetousness because I begin to want something else because I've taken my eyes off in faith the fact that Jesus has already been given me everything I need. And as Paul said, everything is yes in Christ Jesus. Or when you're struggling with forgiveness, it's evidence that somebody is not believing the gospel. It's a gospel issue. We've already been forgiven fully in Jesus. So how do we not extend that same forgiveness? And each time we exercise character, all it is is faith in the gospel. That's why Peter puts faith first. And I want to prove it to you. So turn over to Hebrews 11, and that's where we'll camp out the rest of our time. You like use the same Bible all the time and then you don't have it and things look like they're in different places even though you know that the books haven't changed. Does that ever happen to anybody else? Maybe I'm the freak in the room, but that's alright. That's I'm using a different Bible today and it's really throwing me off. Look with me at verse 1. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. This has enormous implications on character. Character-based decisions come from the fact that I am convinced that though I might not get this thing in my life that I hope for, I have faith and assurance and conviction in the thing that's not seen. So it guides my character-based decision-making. Look down at verse 6. 
And without faith, it's impossible to please Him. For those who draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. As we think about character, how often is character an act of making the decisions that will cause things to go poorly for your flesh? And it might not help you out in this life when you make that character-based decision. But you make that decision in faith because He, according to verse 6, is a rewarder of those who seek Him. And sometimes that might be the only thing that I have to go on. Which again is why Peter lists faith first in the list of character because sometimes that's it. I'm making this decision and I stand alone in faith that He is the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And the rest of the chapter goes on to talk about men and women who in faith made strong character decisions that made no worldly sense whatsoever. And there's too many to mention, but for the sake of clarifying my point, we're just going to zero in on Moses. Look at verses 24 through 27. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproaches of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. It's beautiful. He refused the birthright that he could have had. Think about that. He grew up in Pharaoh's house, according to verse 24, and he refused the birthright that he could have had because this would have put his life on easy street, but that's not what God called him to. So instead of the riches of living in the Pharaoh's house, he chose the poverty of the people of Israel. He chose to be mistreated with a group of outcast slaves rather than to enjoy the riches of palace life. Think about that. Has, has anybody ever been in a similar character situation? Uh, I know it's easy to just look at this like, oh, that's Moses. No, of course not. But I'll bet you you have. I know you have. Because when I did the men's retreat, I talked to some of you men who are going through issues at your jobs, where, where there's, there's a situation where a promotion might come up, but it would, it would take a sacrifice in your character or your integrity to be able to go after it. And you had to ensho- choose, am I going to endure riches in Pharaoh's house or the ill treatment with the people of God? I, I, I've talked to people in this room that have had to make that very decision. And he did it all in faith. And here's the reason in verse 26. He says that he considered the reproaches of Christ to be a greater treasure, to be greater wealth than all of the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. When he was making these character decisions, he considered the reproaches of Christ to be better than anything that he was leaving behind. He wasn't leaving it behind teeth grittingly. He wasn't leaving it behind saying, why can't I have the riches of Egypt? 
oh, the way things could have been, oh, the glory days, he actually considered whatever he had with Jesus, even if it meant sharing in the reproaches of Jesus, to be greater than he could have had in that other life. It's the same thing Paul prayed in Philippians 3, that I want to know him and the power of his resurrection, even if it means to share in his sufferings and to be conformed to his death. He's saying, that's what I want. That's the kind of character that I want forged into my life. And that takes faith. And you look at all of these other examples that are there. You think of Cain and Abel. I mean, that's a classic example. These are two guys sitting alone in a field giving their sacrifices to God. By faith, one guy brings this meaty, meaningful sacrifice, and the other guy goes and just starts chucking vegetables at Jesus, right? And it's saying, by faith, one sacrifice was accepted, and the other one wasn't. Why did they make that? Because it was faith-based character in the Gospel. It's not even like they could have done it for bragging rights. Like, hey, I went and brought... There was four people on the earth. At that time. So who's he going to go and brag to? But he made the decision in faith in the gospel. Now consider this. The chapter ends with all these having gained approval through their faith did not receive what was promised. For God has provided something better for us that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. So they made all of these character decisions in hope of a future Messiah that was going to come We make it being the ones who have received that which is promised. We've seen Jesus. We've seen the resurrected Christ. We've seen the ones that they just fought for and made decisions and character for in faith. We get to look back to Him as having already come. So character built on faith doesn't always give you what you might have expected. You're not living for for this world is really the point. I mean, think of Joseph with Potiphar's wife. That's the one that, that always blows my mind. This guy, I'm sure he was a man. He was handsome in appearance, as it calls him, filled with sensual desires. Day after day, the woman would come to him and say, lie with me. And he wouldn't, because he said, how could I do such a great thing against my master and my God? So she comes and corners him one day, and he says, you know what? I'm just going to beat feet, and I'm going to run on out of there. And what does he get? He gets a prison sentence as a result of his faith and his character. He didn't receive the compensation that demonstrated that he had made the right decision, but that's not what he's living for, and that's character, friends. We don't live for the compensation here and now. These things don't have to be of biblical proportions. I want to, as we prepare to close this session, I want to take it down to where you're at in life right now. The point of the message is to show you that the decisions of character take faith. But I know that you guys are put in the same situations as Joseph. I know that you guys are put in the same situations as Moses. When you go to work and you could do something that would be gain for your flesh, would be gain for this earthly kingdom, but you say, you know what, I'm not living for this kingdom because I know that there's another kingdom and that's the one that I've devoted my life to. That's the same faith 
that was talked about in Hebrews chapter 11. Those guys weren't put there so that we could idolize them. They were put there to point us to Jesus. They weren't put there so that we could say, oh, the great faith of Abraham and the great faith of Moses. You're written into that chapter. You are that great cloud of witnesses when you choose to make a decision in faith rather than that which would be easier and more appealing to your flesh, and you live for a city whose builder and architect is God, as it says back in verse 16. So I want to conclude with this. When we say that character is forged in faith, faith in what? That's obviously the gospel is somewhere I'm going to go in there, right? But Character comes from the fact that Christ is sufficient. I, I don't have to find my sufficiency elsewhere because I know that I believe in a Jesus that's sufficient for me. So when I'm offered something that's to meet some kind of sufficiency within me, but I know that it's not something that my Lord has given me, character comes in refusing that because I know that Jesus is sufficient. And I trust that Jesus is sufficient. Character comes from a faith that Christ is glorified. How many times we've had to make decisions in character where you don't get to see the immediate fruit of it right now. You don't get to see the dividends that are paid. Man, I've been stuck in that situation so many times where where I've actually prayed to the Lord, Lord, my faith is weary. Could you please just help me to see the other side of this just so I know that you're in it? I mean, I'm going to continue by your grace to continue to take one step forward and do the next thing that you've called me to. But man, I need to know that you're glorified. So can you just show me some way that I know that you're being glorified in this? Isn't it precious the times that he actually does? Can, can anybody tell me like of a, of a more precious thing in your faith in those times where you're just like, God, I, I need to know and I need to be able to trust that you're being glorified in this. And I have no reason to be able to, like, other than I know you're good, but I, I can't see it. I remember after we, we lost our daughter, I, I was preaching just open-air evangelism out in a field in England. And I'm preaching through Revelation chapter 21, talking about how there's going to be a day that we're going to see Jesus face to face. And I was still a very broken man. This was all still a very fresh wound. I said, we're going to see that Jesus... He's going to wipe away every tear. He's going to take away every pain. He's going to take away everything that ever happened to you. That's what it says right there. I'm going to see him face to face. So that daughter I lost, I'm going to get to see her again. There's going to be no tears in the presence of Jesus. And it's going to be awesome. And as soon as I finished that, this woman that just lost a child the week before came up and said, thank you for showing me that I could hope again. Because I just wanted to give up. And she came and found my wife. She drove from her house in Edinburgh, Scotland to come and meet with my wife to give her a card and a stuffed animal saying, I, I don't have much money, but I just want to give this to you because it's all I have. Thank you for teaching me that I could hope again. Man, is it sweet in those times where all you have to go on is that God is going to be glorified and you actually get to see it. But 
boy, is it the forging of character when you don't get to see it, but you have to continue to progress on anyway. Character comes from faith that in the end, Jesus will be enough. And that's character. That, that even if I didn't get that thing that I wanted, I didn't get that thing that I was pulling for, I didn't get that thing that everybody else got, I didn't get the thing that the wicked person got. Isn't that one of the hardest questions in Scripture? Why does the wicked prosper? How many times did Solomon pontificate over that? I don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me why the Character comes from faith that, that Jesus is going to be enough in that. Even if for somebody else who's prospering in front of you that ought not to have, Jesus is going to be enough for that. And the last one is character comes from a faith that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. I get a little goofy when it comes to talking about rewards. I don't know if anybody else does. You know, I feel like Christian piety should say, like, oh, I'm just doing it all for Jesus. But, man, I want to get rewarded when I get there. Don't, don't you? Like, I want to believe that this wasn't it. I want to believe that those decisions that were made in character, that there's going to be a day where I'm going to get to meet my Savior face-to-face and place my hand in his nail-scarred hands and hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Come into your rest. That's what character is. It's a faith that he's going. So in other words, it's the gospel. It's believing in the gospel. And friends, I want to close with this. I'm not talking about teeth-gritting faith here. I'm not talking about how faith is just, their character is forged by, I'm just going to make myself believe it and believe it and believe it and believe it. That's not what I'm talking about. A A few years ago, I went to this conference, and it was just some of my favorite preachers in the world and, and, and I love these guys and R.C. Sproul was up front and he was talking about the three different words for faith in the Bible and he used an analogy that, that a lot of you guys are, are probably familiar with he used, he used the chair analogy and he said you know there's this one kind of faith and that's just the faith that you know I say to you is that a chair and you say yeah that's a chair And then there's a deeper kind of faith, and that's, does this chair have everything that it needs to be to be a sufficient chair? And he was talking about that faith that James talks about, like you do well to believe, even the demons believe and shudder. He was talking about that kind of faith, like yeah, you believe he's the Messiah, even the demons believe he's the Messiah, so you believe this is a chair? Well, that's great. Demons believe that this chair is a chair. And he was talking about the third kind of faith, the kind of faith that's like the saving kind of faith. And he was saying that it's not that kind of faith until you say, I'm going to actually trust in and put my faith in the chair. And then he sat down in the chair, and that was his big crescendo at the end of the message. And John Piper comes running through the audience, God bless his heart, just wild-eyed and crazy, and goes, No way! You got it wrong, R.C.! I'm tired of the illustration. That's not enough. you got to love the chair. It's all about the chair. Man, I don't want to just sit in the chair. All I want in life is the chair. I want to take you around and say, do you see how beautiful and radiant the majesty of this chair is? Then evangelism isn't, hey, get out and tell people about the chair. It's, would you come and just experience my chair? 
And he's pulling people up out of the audience and he's getting them to sit in the chair and he's like, oh, isn't it the loveliest fit of any chair? There will never be another chair that will fill the void in your heart that was made for only this chair. That's the kind of faith that he was talking about. And that's the kind of faith that I'm talking about here. When we put faith in this perspective, it forms a fitting bridge to character. Because character isn't something that's teeth gritting and heavy, but it's the joy of outliving a gospel faith. God, thank you so much for the chair. Thank you that you took a bunch of knuckleheads like us and you showed us the chair when we were running from the chair. Jesus, help us to forge a character in believing that there's no other chair that will ever be enough. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.